You're listening to The Byliners, presented by The Gateway. Hello, hello, hello. It's the week of number 30th, 2020, and you're listening to The Byliners, presented by The Gateway, the University of Alberta's student-run magazine. As always, I'm your host, Tom DeKezzi, the arts and culture editor at The Gateway, and I'm here with The Gateway's opinion editor, Mitchell Pollock. Hey beauties, how's how's it going? <laughs> Hope you're having a great weekend. <laughs> and we also have a very special guest today, the Chief, um, as in the Gateway's editor in chief, Adam Lahatch. Did I say that right, Adam? You did. Hello, good day to everyone. <laughs> um, so yeah, P and Kadra, they weren't able to make it uh, to this week's episode, so I guess it's just the boys this time. Um, that's fun. Uh, but since this is your first time on the podcast, Adam, um, I thought maybe would you maybe want to introduce yourself to the listeners, uh, maybe tell them your degree, what you're about, your zodiac sign, anything, anything they need to know. Okay, definitely. Well, first things first, I am a Scorpio, so I think that says a lot. Uh, I am a fifth year double Excellent. major at the university. <laughs> 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 that's actually so accurate um that if if i had a spirit animal it would be hectic <laughs> um yeah as i was saying i'm a fifth year double major history political science at the university of alberta i'm doing a couple of research certificates as well in uh, global governance and peace and post-conflict studies um i'm an avid uh formula one fan um Are you actually i i am yes i i very much so am Yo, that's so okay. I'm not a Formula One fan, um, <laughs> but that's actually so rare. Like, I'm I'm a soccer fan. I know, like, whenever I meet someone else who's a soccer fan in Edmonton, I always freak out a bit. Um, I imagine it's like that with Formula One. Is it like that with Formula One? There, there is a community in Edmonton oh, okay. for sure. I mean, yeah. um, the the best part are the meme pages. I think because uh-huh. um, Formula One fans are ruthless, um, and so if you make a mistake they'll definitely meme you on it uh, nothing gets past us formula one fans so it's uh if you like your meme game then formula one is the perfect sport for you wait okay i don't want to get hung up on this but like what's your opinion of nascar nascar because <laughs> i know a lot of formula one people like look down on nascar because it's just turning left for four hours <laughs> well i i mean there there still is some comp there is still some level of competition in nascar i don't want to downplay i mean there's still athletes it's it takes an incredible amount of physicality to drive a race car you have to be so fit you have to be very mentally um aware and and prepared but at the same time i don't necessarily think uh it's to the same level of skill as say formula one or even indycar um Uh you're literally i mean you're just turning left or right sometimes there are some circuits that you do go counterclockwise just to change things up at least a little bit but um i just don't find it very interesting to be honest i don't find there's the same level of strategy the same level of excitement and thrill and adrenaline that other motor racing has wait adam can we will we ever spot you motor racing that's that's i feel the real question I mean, if I was given the opportunity, oh my gosh, I'd jump in. Absolutely. Um, just this summer, we actually had a volunteer who was on vacation in Vancouver and he pitched an article where he was like, hey, can 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 I go drive around oh, yeah. a race circuit and talk about my experience? And I was like, yeah, how many Gateway student readers are going to enjoy this piece of content? But 
uh, go for it. <laughs> and it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. I, I have to admit. So I, if, if given the opportunity, hell yeah. Um, I guess part of the reason why I'm, I'm so big into to motor racing is a, cause of my partner. Um, she, she loves it. That's, it's something oh, that so she got you into it. She did. But I mean, oh, I grew up, I grew so up sweet. in a family that watched it because there were a lot of Polish, um, drivers in it and so it was like a national pastime where sunday was sacred because you would go to church and then after church you would watch formula one um because there were (laughs) polish drivers and so you got the whole country um but then also in edmonton we had the indycar series come here i think it was for seven years where they raced at the former city center airport and it was a really cool street circuit and my grandpa took me every year um and i kind of just fell in love it was really cool one year he he splurged a little and we got paddock passes and so we got to go in and see like the pit row and see kind of the mechanics working on the engines and it was really interesting i i just kind of fell in love with it and and i love that it's as much about the athletics and about the strategy too um because there's so much strategy that goes into you know how much fuel load do you have what type of tire when do you pit um, and, and all that, and, and even reading the weather, like if it's going to start raining halfway through the race, when do you put your wet tires on? And I don't know, I could talk for days about it, but I know that this isn't a Formula One podcast. <laughs> and I will time, say my partner is actually obsessed with it as he really likes, I think it's Formula One. He likes some kind of racing thing. Really? So. Oh my gosh. I, yeah. oh, okay. I'm going to have to reach out and we're going to have to uh, talk some, some motor racing then. Do it. He's, his whole family watches it as well because they're British. So they all. Oh, fix. fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Oh, okay um i've i've never watched a single sports event in my life so um yeah just just before we started yes. recording um we were talking about like bo- <laughs> we were talking about um jake paul fighting nate robinson last night and mitch mitch, mitch called it wrestling <laughs> um... and then and then he started talking about um conor mcgregor but he referred to him as you and mcgregor <laughs> Glorious. They're so similar, guys. Come on. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm sorry for putting you on blast like that, Mitchell. Oh, uh, it's okay. Uh, I know I don't know sports, so I yeah, have zero no. shame in it. Uh, yeah, there was one time where we didn't. I I used to do improv once upon a time, and I had to improvise. I had to like, be an improviser, like for a sports announcement. And I announcement. <laughs> it was. I was so bad. I like. I was like, this person's scoring a point or a goal. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Um, it was really confusing. Everyone's um, sweaty. They're all very sweaty right now. <laughs> More or less, it was it was so awkward. I was like, oh, I was like, what That's is this? So funny. Um, um, anyway, yeah. I think we, we kind of went a bit off track. Uh, Adam, you're telling us about yourself. Uh, you're a Scorpio. <laughs> you're a Scorpio who loves uh, motor racing. Anything else? Maybe we should know about you. Yeah, I, I'm an avid uh, student journalist. I am a. a, a Oh my goodness, I'm going to try that again. I apologize. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, uh, yeah, I'm an avid uh, student journalist. I'm really hoping to practice as much of the craft um, as possible so that when I do graduate, knock on wood, if everything goes well this year, uh, I end up convocating after five years of a BA um, that I get to get uh, employed in in the field. I I love journalism. I think that there's so much... um, there's so much that the field can do, especially as it works to be better and more inclusive and more equity focused. I think that mm-hmm. um, it can really continue to be a force for for power and reckoning. Um, I, I hope that, you know, after my five year career at the Gateway, 
uh, and a handful of internships at other places, I can make the hop into mainstream media and uh, make a difference. Mainstream media? Ooh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> you're going to be hanging out with Conrad... <laughs> Adam, you're gonna be hanging out with Conrad Black in no time. I have. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. You, you us, mentioned it. Oh, Mitch, you're gonna add something. Oh, I was gonna say I have a whole rant about Conrad Black, but it's okay. I just he said something dumb on Twitter today. I just remind me. That's his big side. <laughs> Wait, that that's not news, Mitch. He does that every day. <laughs> no, yeah. it was worse today though. He basically said that he can't believe that the United States media won't investigate claims of election fraud. And I was like, but, but but they are. It's just that there's yeah. no evidence. Yep. Yeah, there's that's... there's really nothing to investigate. I mean, didn't Pennsylvania's court just throw out the case uh, on Saturday as well for citing a lack of evidence? Yep. And apparently Conrad Black just doesn't believe that. I don't know. Um, he also like I. Uh, but he was like, it's just the media's under the Democrats' thumb, and it's like honestly, mm, this is coming from someone Fox that got News? pardoned. It's from someone that got pardoned by the sitting president. Like, I'm not going to take <laughs> your work for jack shit when it comes to partisan shit. I have to be honest. Like, Also, Conrad Black calls himself a historian. And I, he's about as much of a historian as I am, like, a like hard physical scientist. Like, Or, or no. a sports announcer. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah. Anyways, um, jeez, we're looking to your future, that Adam. Yeah, that's that's yeah, good. Good luck. I Adam will replace him <laughs> like Conrad Black. I have confidence. Um, um, I I know you mentioned it quickly in introducing yourself, but uh, but you are like a genuine gateway veteran, um, with the scars to prove it. The PTSD. Yes. <laughs> um, I know. I think between the two, like the three of us, I know I've been volunteering for the gateway like four years, but that's kind of not true because it's been very on and off um until i got hired um mitch you just started volunteering i think a year before right a year ago i i started volunteering this january actually oh, okay. I even, it's i'm i am very technically i'm very new to the gateway but i just i'm yeah i started i wanted to volunteer for the gateway for a long time and i was just so scared once i missed like the first year recruitment and then so I just hard. started showing up and kept harassing my editor, so it, it worked out really well in the end. <laughs> Usually, that's that's how it goes. Is you know, you you keep pushing the editor, and eventually they'll bend. I mean, you know, exactly. <laughs> it, it was a great lesson in journalism for me. <laughs> yeah, man. Any, any volunteers listening? Uh, the road to the top. It's you can do it quickly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> look at Mitchell now, calling the strings. Um, just running the show but adam yeah you've been here for like i think five like real years at the gateway right? that's right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I, I started as a volunteer um in my first year i think i ended up writing something like six or seven articles mostly for the news section i did try a couple of opinion articles um my first opinion article i ever wrote was how people need to stop uh, talking t about Justin Trudeau's hair and stop start talking about his policies but it never got published because it was super weak um, but I still uh, I think that that line of argumentation stands um, that was during his <laughs> election um, when people kept calling him dreamy and um, I don't know I think there's only uh, so much you can do with with your hair uh, whereas with public policy it's uh, it's an infinite realm of possibility <laughs> But yeah, um, started as a volunteer, uh, worked my way up. I was a volunteer for two years and then I was staff reporter, which is a job where 
Uh, essentially, you get paid every week to just write. Um, that was kind of like the dream job. And I was so happy that I got that job that I didn't yeah. expect to go any further. And then ended up becoming news editor, which was a huge surprise. <laughs> um, and then I was like, okay, um, after my stint as news editor, which was really cool because rather than writing a lot, you got to kind of direct the section and empower volunteers and do some training, which was really fun. Um, and then I thought I was done for sure um, because I was really feeling burnt out. But then uh, here I am, editor in chief, the chief uh, of the paper. And um, now I, I am definitely done after this year. I, yeah. I can say that for sure. <laughs> also, not just editor-in-chief of any year, editor-in-chief of the COVID year. Of, uh, yeah, that's, year. that's true. It is, it, it's, been, it's been a ride, you know. Uh, COVID has definitely changed the way we operate. But I think that uh, one of the things that editor-in-chief does is he re represents the gateway to the Canadian University Press or CUP which is the uh, union of uh, student mastheads and publications across Canada. And we have these uh, meetings regularly where we kind of share strategies and ask for advice. And one of the things that I, I learned early on in the term is the fact that so many student publications across Canada were actually shutting down or were wow. uh, temporarily stopping production um, because they just couldn't meet the COVID challenge. And so I have to say that the gateway um, all the editors-in-chief before and the staff before really allowed us to be in a spot where we could be successful, where we could make that pivot, uh, like so many small businesses are right now, to online and other um, methods of publication. So, you know, I, props go to the people who who had the idea of switching us from a newspaper to a magazine and a, and a daily website, because um, that's what set us up for success in COVID, because there's so many horror stories of you know, um, weekly newspapers or bi-weekly newspapers that are run by students at universities in Ontario, all across Canada, really, um, that, you know, COVID has just kind of changed the face of how they operate. And some of them are not going to survive this, whereas I know that the Gateway will not only survive, but actually come out stronger. Dang. Wow. That's, that's actually, like, really, um, I guess, like, a nice bit of perspective. I, I know, Like, even though I work at a student newspaper... I'd never actually crossed my mind that a whole bunch of them are probably shutting down right now. Um, dang. Um, but if you if you ever want to catch Adam, uh, I guess, outside of the podcast. Actually, that sounds weird. Makes, <laughs> makes it like I'm about to give you a dress or something. So they can like... <laughs> Dox Adam right in front of him. <laughs> yeah, catch me in the streets. Uh, no, but you can, <laughs> you can see Adam on Afternoons with Adam um how often does, does that go up on it's on facebook right it's a facebook live stream. yeah we're we're on facebook live uh once a month for now we're going to be increasing the frequency because we've been getting really good feedback but essentially uh yeah you can follow all of my exploits and wonderful adventures through student journalism on uh, <laughs> on facebook live if you like us uh just search the gateway uh on facebook and um yeah it, it's 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 a wild ride yes. you can even ask adam questions in real time that's you right. Know yes, what it's like to to be a five five years as a student journalist. He has the answers. Yeah, yeah. I if try you, to have the answers. If, if you want to watch a man slowly get burnt out to the last embers <laughs> of, of his being, <laughs> tune into Afternoons with Adam. Oh man, but no, no, seriously. Like, if if we're talking about student journalism, we have to talk about the mental health aspect. I mean, journalism as a whole is an industry that is all about selling your soul you you literally cannot have a work-life balance even though they tell you you know in j school and in internships and things like that to try to have balance you you literally can't especially 
you know, when you're working at a publication that is still printing, I mean, the deadlines are killer and the grind you have to put yourself through. So props to all the, the journalists out there, because, you know, when at the start of the pandemic, when they were talking about, you know, um, essential services, um, you know, we're definitely one of those too. Um, yeah, so I guess now that you know the kind of mental state that all of us are in, um, <laughs> I think we can hop into uh, hop into this week's headlines. Uh, we have a pretty busy show today. Uh, the, in terms of U of A news, um, the gateway has been popping off this last week, um, but we're gonna get to that later. I thought we'd stop with something. We'd start with something uh, from the pop culture world. Just last week, uh, the Grammys came out with their nominations for the 2021 Grammys. And um, as usual, they disappointed all of us. Uh, <laughs> the biggest headlines um, from this year's batch of nominees is, I think the by far the biggest one is The Weeknd being snubbed. Um, for After Hours, he got zero nominations. Um, some other projects that were largely overlooked um, were Little Baby's My Turn, um, Roddy Rich um, with Please Excuse Me for Being Antisocial, even though both those albums went double platinum. And I think like this year... People have been having a conversation for a long time about how useful the Grammys are or how effective they are at, you know, judging excellence in the music field. And, you know, they've done some things, I guess, to maybe address some of those issues. Um, I know that a lot of times they're criticized for, um, I guess, almost stereotyping black artists. So they changed the urban contemporary uh, category to progressive R&B. Ooh, big change. Um <laughs> they're still latin oh, urban. Uh, sorry i didn't know that That's yeah <laughs> yeah no. Damn, the I, Grammys are I know so I, progressive i was looking at some of the changes they made in the last couple of years they went from uh after a one-month consultation process took them 30 days to figure this out they went from <laughs> they went from world music to global music uh, <laughs> because that was more inclusive <laughs> ah yes <laughs> yeah um so I, I I think just like a good opening question is how do you guys feel about um, this year's nominees? I don't know if if you've watched them that closely, but I think personally the biggest snub to me is the weekend. Um, yeah. I mean, especially since he's Canadian, so I'm kind of biased. Um, I love it when Canadians get um, recognition, you know, through these mainstream awards. But it's just really sad to see that again, uh, this man who's incredibly talented who you know, if you look at his story and his career projection or career uh, progression, sorry, yeah, um, it, it's it's incredible. I mean, he has really become this global superstar um, out of out of nothing, and it's it's an amazing story. Like I remember, he was the headliner act in my in my first year at university during a week of welcome, and it was the free concert. Serious? Yeah, the, the students' union. Whoa. Uh, it was an incredible concert and you know at that point in time um you know he was just considered like a canadian icon he wasn't necessarily on the international stage but now he's really a force to be reckoned with and for him to not be there especially since um you know blinding lights is it's an incredible album and i just love the artistry that he presents um you know it's not just about the music um and and the tones and kind of the the musicality of it but just the whole package and the artistry that he presents through um the, his music videos and everything for him to be snubbed is is really an injustice i think i would strongly agree with that um i yeah i i so the grammys is actually the only award show i sit down and watch um because i i'm not a huge fan of like i like movies but i don't like really sit down like 
review yeah. movies or anything like that, I do sit down and just review albums by myself. Um, cause I, <laughs> I'm a huge music person. Um, ever since the first time I listened to Amy Winehouse's Back to Black album, I've just been obsessed with music. Um, and just listening, even though I'm untalented as hell and can't play anything, um, or sing. Uh, but I, the Grammys for me is just like, I feel like their nominees and their winners for the last several years have been off. And I think this year is potentially the worst because yeah. um, as, as Adam put like the weekend's a huge star, hugely talented and his album this year was so good. And it After also hours, was yeah. so successful and mm-hmm. yeah, like, well, and like the whole album's amazing, but some of the singles off there, like blinding lights is such a big thing for it to not be nominated for record of the year is very surprising. Um, and I just can't get over it. And there's and there's other huge snubs as well, like Tom mentioned. For me, I think the other biggest one is Fiona Apple not getting recognized for Album of the Year for Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Because that was an amazing album. That was so well thought out. I haven't heard something like it before. And I it makes me kind of upset that the artists that I feel do get recognized, like, well, I'm sure they have a lot of hard work. Yeah that they put forward like i have to be honest and say i don't think taylor swift is someone who potentially deserves three album of the year awards for a lot of the albums she's put out even even though folk- folklore this year is actually good but yeah I'm just saying i don't know if we should have gotten to this point yeah and like you, oh sorry you made a good point like i think a lot of times people criticize the grammys for just um for just uh nominating like commercially successful albums like in like you know overlooking maybe some critically successful albums and just looking for what was the number one seller and i think that's what makes this weekend album so strange and like almost so damning because the thing is like commercially it was a number one critically um it was praised and then still it ends up getting like i want to clarify for listeners zero nominations it's not like it only got nominated in the r&b category or in the pop category um even though it really could have been in either of those it got none zero zilch um and I know, like, for me personally, I've always had an issue with the Grammys. Um, like, I'm, I'm really into hip-hop, and I think the Grammys have been, like, notoriously bad with hip-hop. Uh, probably the best example is, I think, the way they've treated Kendrick Lamar. I think the last his last three um, albums, To Pimp a Butterfly, Damn, Good Kid, Mad City, I think most people would argue those are maybe three of the three best <laughs> hip-hop albums that have come, up with, come out in the last ten years. Um, and neither of them, uh, you know, one album of the year, and I think in 2012 he lost out to macklemore which a lot of people it was so bad even macklemore apologized for it (laughs) 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 yeah yeah macklemore pretty famously sent him a text saying he was sorry (laughs) i I forgot about that yeah Yeah. um but i I think maybe just a a more general conversation which can be had on it and i've been thinking about this the last couple days is you know do we still like need critics to tell us what's good and i realize this might be kind of a damning conversation because you know um i do write album reviews for a website um and i <laughs> i actually have a few I was about to ask. <laughs> i'm working on right now no but but i i think this is this is an honest question because you know i think a lot of a lot of the i guess critic culture that we have it came out of a time where you know people could only like let's say even even tv I could only watch one show at 6.30 and I had to sit there and I knew there was all these other shows I was missing. So I went to a critic to say, okay, what's the best show I can watch at 6.30? Or in terms of music, I had to buy an album before I'd ever heard it. And so if I'm going to spend my $13, 
I should know, you know, what's good, what's not um, before I pay for it. But now we've come to a place where, like, I can listen to all the music I ever want for five bucks a month. I can just watch all the movies I ever want for eleven ninety nine a month. Um, I have things like Twitter where I can see what all my friends are listening to, what, what they're all watching. And so then it's like, do we still need to come together every year and, like, see the opinions of, like, 20 people in the music industry who maybe aren't even that like connected to what's going on, like in the social zeitgeist and say like, Oh, this is what, this is, this is what was excellent from this past year. And like, I'm even asking myself, like, do you feel like we still need critics? Yeah. If, if critics, whether or not critics are necessary is actually a really good question. Cause I often think, I think about it a lot when I read album reviews. Cause I am someone that goes and reads album reviews quite regularly. Um, but I think with the thing about critics is there's always going to be really, really great albums that they miss simply because they're not big enough. Yeah. Or artists that get unnecessary praise or unnecessary criticism because of who they are, because of things, like, factors I feel like outside of their music sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I just feel, I feel like critics are still necessary to some extent. Like, I think it's really, really useful to have someone that's able to go through music and be able to be like, this is some of the, like, more deeper themes that they're pulling out but i think you should never take a critic's authoritative on like what music can mean to you especially because music can be so varied and because there are so many artists there's no way one critic's ever going to be able to actually fully capture what's happening especially institutions like the grammys where yeah the people that actually make up the institution are arguably not that representative of like a lot of the like the actual creators themselves all the time yeah yeah, and I think like also also adding on to that is I think even the weekend I'm trying to pull it up um, when he found out he uh, hadn't been nominated I think he tweeted out the Grammys remain corrupt you owe me my fans and the industry transparency um, and then I think he sent another tweet a few hours later um, pretty much saying he wasn't going to perform there anymore Cause funny enough I think they've been working on him to perform at the Grammys and then <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> didn't nominate him at all but I, I think. Um, there's a lot that also has to be said about like, uh, yeah, like what well, like what the weekend said, transparency, because I think the Grammys and even the Oscars or Emmys or all these other awards, it's kind of a faceless process, you know, and you don't really know who's nominating, you don't know who's voting, and I think that kind of contributes to maybe the mystique around it, like because you don't know, it's like Jim's like instead of the Grammys being okay, Jim, Sally, and Frank think this is the best album of the year. It almost seems like it's, oh, the music industry decided this is the best album of the year. Because you don't know who voted on it. And it's just like this this faceless entity which decides what's excellent and what's not. And I think that kind of makes it easier for us to all buy into it. But if we knew who was voting on it, I think it would it would kind of maybe hold them, hold them to account a little bit more. Uh, I think a good example is like boxing uh, or wrestling. Is Mitch, oh, sorry, Mitch. I don't want to pick on you again. <laughs> All good, all good. I, I don't know sports, and I'm very proud of that yeah. fact. So you good? Yeah, but uh, like I think with boxing, for example, like boxing, everyone like those judges are sitting right by the ring, and everyone knows who they are. Um, and so like when they put in their decision, people sometimes disagree with them. It's like, oh, this guy is notoriously bad at, at judging, or like I never agree with this person or that person. And it's and like you realize it's like they kind of put it right in front of you, like, oh, these are just a couple people deciding what's good and what's not. Whereas with the Grammys, it's just like, Oh, the Grammys have decided, but like, who is that? Um, 
I don't know. I don't know, Adam. Do you have any thoughts? Are you are you still um, a believer of critic culture? Do you like? Do you do you find you still read stuff like album reviews and and things like that, or or, or no? I personally have stopped reading album reviews, but I still read movie and theater reviews. Um, mm. I actually started in journalism, writing theater reviews, so those will always have a soft place in my heart. But oh. um, <laughs> oh, that was so wholesome. I'm no. so sorry. That was just. Uh... Let me just go blow wow. my eyes out. <laughs> that was uh I, I didn't expect that to be so hard hitting, fam. But um no, I, I think that critics still have a place um within our culture. I just think that the way in which we critique needs to improve. I think we need to take a look at the the makeup of critics and see yeah. the fact that the amount of critics that are out there um are largely white males and females which isn't representative of the music industry as a whole and of the global community of musicians and of artists and so um i think there needs to be a reckoning in the methodologies and how critics become critics because there's also this kind of unwritten rule in the industry that in order to become a critic you have to have been you know a journalist for so long you have mm -hmm. to have you know these qualifications and and all of that and some of this is implicit, some of this is explicitly, you know, laid out. But I think what needs to happen is that we need to match what is actually happening on the ground, because a lot of the times these critics have been critics for so long that they're not necessarily getting to, um, like Mitchell said, the, the music that um, is, is really being listened to or things like that or placing yeah. undue uh, attention on albums that don't necessarily deserve it. I just think that there needs to be a greater democratization of the critic culture. Um, and I think that, you know, in this time and place that, you know, where we have Twitter and Facebook, where anyone can become an armchair critic, I think there's still a room for a professional critic to come in uh, and to offer value um, instead of, you know, a, a Karen on Twitter going off or, you know, uh, Sally, you know, doing her hot take on Twitter, I think there's always going to be people who are going to want that um, regimented kind of critique. It's just, are the people who are writing these critiques representative of the music industry um, as a whole? I think that's my biggest thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think you also like run up against the problem of like, a lot of like music generally isn't made for critics like you know it's just made for for normal people like i think jay-z he even he had, he had this one quote um i'm paraphrasing but he was like you know this was his earlier music but he's like if you've never like lived like if you've never like lived like come from where i've come from or like you know seen the things i've seen or like you know come from the streets and different things like that if you never sold drugs you never like lived around those kinds of things you're not going to relate to my music even a little bit like if you're, um, yeah, like, like, like Adam's saying, if you're, you know, if you've been this New York Times journalist for 20 years and you just hang out and you're like, um, you know, New York Times circles and things like that, when you hear Jay-Z talking about like, you know, selling crack and things like that, it's not really going to resonate with you in the same way that it would with someone who sees those things on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and maybe you wouldn't even catch on to like why this is so um, impactful. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah. Matt. I think also that, a lot of the times critiquing has gotten away from the root of it all, which is music is an experience just like yeah. any art. Mm -hmm. And a lot of critics are kind of talking about the lyrics and are talking about, you know, the, the actual score of this song behind the lyrics and things like that. And they're talking about kind of the technical prowess and all that. 
but at the core you know music is experience and when you hear a song you relate because the lyrics mean something to you and so i think one of the things that critics should be doing is rather than spending all this time talking about how much budget they have or what studio they're a part of and controversies surrounding that um is kind of come back to the root of it and and talking about you know um, their own what they got out of the song and and how they experience what the experience like was or what the experience was like for them when they listened to that song and and relating that through their reviews because ultimately if music makes you feel something then that song or that album has done its job and so I think that we need to kind of make a return back to that as opposed to talking about you know um, the studio politics and, and those are still important, but I don't know if those necessarily should be weighing as much in, in, in reviews and things like that. hundred yeah. percent. Well, and yeah, I just feel, I do feel like a lot of like mainstream critic sites um, and that's, it's not coming from mainstream media overall, but I do find a lot of critics that are just in such a prestigious position, such as being a music critic at the New York times or being a music critic at Rolling Stone. Um, can really isolate you, unfortunately, from a lot of the great music that does exist. And it takes you away, I think, from a lot of, like, what makes music enjoyable, which is, as you said, Adam, that it's, like, an experience, and it's it's an expression. And I, I, I really think it really gets away from that. So, like, I don't know. When I, when I try and read music critics, I, I do read certain publications more than others, but I also always try and go to some community publications, too, that, like, highlight artists that I might not otherwise know. Like, I know I really appreciate, as a queer person, I go to Extra a lot, where they've sometimes mm. profiled artists that are queer, and like, I, like, I don't know, I, I appreciate critics that are sometimes a bit more on the ground like that, because it seems like they're finding things that sometimes get slipped through the cracks that I think could get more recognition. I mean, one of my favorite parts of the year, and unfortunately this year didn't happen because of COVID, was the Fringe Festival, and I know that we're talking about yeah. music and the Grammys, but um, you know, I love that time of year because you have hundreds of new plays that are developed by community members. Sometimes they're made by big kind of theater companies, but usually it's by people that are in the community, like high school teachers or waiters. I mean, uh, two years ago, there was a play put on by a restaurant, um, Meet on, on White Ave, and they did Meet the Musical, which was, you know, about their experience of preparing the food and serving it to people and things like that. But my favorite part about the Fringe Festival is watching these shows, but then reading all these community publications, not like the Edmonton Journal, but like reading about these kind of small underground websites that review these theaters and all these new people that get a platform to review and and talk about why or why not this is good and and that's one of my favorite things is when you've got the all this kind of content coming out and you've got these people who aren't traditionally critics become these critics and tell mm. you which piece of content to to view or or to pay money to see or which you can pass on um and and they're talking about you know how relatable or and things like that i, I think that is what needs to happen is that we need to move away from a model where you know because in, in, in mainstream media, the project or career progression for someone who becomes kind of like a, a, an arts and culture critic is that, you know, oh, this is kind of their sunset gig. They have mm -hmm. done their job as a news beat reporter. You know, they did courts and crime. They've worked up to news editor. And now these are their twilight years. So give them something easy to write about. Oh, just put them in arts or, or lifestyle or culture or whatever section 
um, and then you know these people aren't necessarily the right people to be there. I think what 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 I was trying to make with the point I brought up earlier is that you have to have a passion for the thing that you're covering, and I think yeah. that a lot of the times people who are put in these positions and in, in places like the New York Times or whatnot they're not necessarily the most passionate about these things or the most knowledgeable about um you know pop or r&b or you know what's happening in the urban contemporary oh sorry adam you still there yeah yeah oh okay sorry yeah just heard a little bit of popping from your mic um it should be oh sorry oh no no it's all good um but yeah, yeah, I think that, that that's like a really good point. Maybe it's not even like the problem is like, you know, critics and like critic culture, but just more so how detached they are from the music or like or detached they are from the art. You know, you can talking about the Fringe Festival and things like that. You know, are they people who are like involved with these artists, artists and know where people are coming from and like understand, um, you know, what's informing people's art? Or is it just like you said, you know, some near retirement <laughs> reporter um, who's just trying to bang out a couple a couple articles, um, you know, uh, before they kick the can. Uh, <laughs> um, if you do want to read more, maybe about the the Grammy 2021 nominations, um, the Grammy interim chief or president, I don't know what exactly the title is, but Harvey Mason Jr. Um, he recently did uh, two interviews uh, with Pitchfork and also with Variety, where they, they did kind of ask him about um, about the nomination process and also about the weekend uh, not winning, I mean, not being nominated for, for, for any Grammys this year. I will warn you, they, there's a lot of non-answers in there. Um, um, but if you do read it, you do kind of get, I think maybe a clearer picture of, of, of what's going on at the Grammys. I'm not, it's not necessarily a good one. It's not really an understandable one. I know there's one comment where he says like, oh, we listened to most of the album. And I was like, okay, that's great. <laughs> um, um, but if you do want to watch uh, next year's Grammys, it is going to be on January 31st, uh, 2021. To be honest, I'm not sure I'll watch it. Maybe I will to write an article. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's another year, another disappointing list of Grammy nominees. Um, Gateway watch party. Um. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I actually don't mind Blast. that suggestion. Um, but just to, to move on into, I guess, a more local update. This is some provincial news. And this is actually why we had Adam on the show today. Um, the provincial government uh, just gave a fiscal update. I believe it was last week. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Adam, do you want to fill in the listeners on on you know what they uh, what they announced? Yeah, for sure. So um, essentially, what a, a mid year fiscal update is is it's a, a fancy way of saying this is the province opening up their books and being like, hey, this is how we're spending your money. Um, how we're doing our our budget forecast that we presented to you in February. Are they accurate or not? Um, and then adapting to current circumstances. So obviously budgets are made, you know, years in advance. There's hundreds of um, public servants that go into building a budget and the politicians kind of just direct the effort. But these documents are written well in advance of the year that um, the financial context is going to be taking place within. And so this fiscal mid-year update is kind of just to show, are we on track or not? And this happened on November 24th, um, so just five days ago uh, since we've been since we're recording. But essentially, the the provincial government, which is led by the United Conservative Party here in Alberta, um, they opened up their books and they said, "Listen, you know, we kind of downplayed the economic forecast that COVID uh, would make in the province and the havoc it would create." 
Um, and so we're a way off target. Mm-hmm. Um, we're forecasting a deficit of $21.3 billion at the end of this fiscal year. Um, and that the the budget or the the debt load of Alberta is going to reach $97.4 billion by the end of this year and climb to $125 billion by 2022 to 2023. Um, and if we, we, I, I did some number crunching, and essentially that translates to $22,000 per Albertan living in the province right now. And that's with just the, late, uh, the, the census data um, that we have available. So that figure might not even be accurate because the data isn't that um, recent. But it, it was a very sobering update um you know essentially the the government is is blaming it on you know covid and then the fact that there was a global uh oil price uh, crash they didn't use the word crash um even though it was the crash they, i guess they're too scared of the implications of that term um mm-hmm. to their voter base but they said a, a slide in global prices for oil um and they're <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so they're they're blaming the, these numbers on those two factors. Um, and, you know, I was at budget day. It happened in February of this year. Um, obviously, at that point in time, we were living in a different reality. There weren't masks yet. Um, other places around the world were experiencing the COVID pandemic, but not Alberta yet. And I remember that they mentioned COVID-19 maybe three or four times in the entire budget document and that they were going to leave a little bit of budgetary room to absorb any economic impact that COVID would have. But the number one question that we were asking reporters is, hey, you know, obviously the WHO hasn't declared this a world pandemic yet and there hasn't been any cases in Alberta yet, but Italy has locked down Uh, China has locked down, you know, there's a lot of cases happening in the United States in other places around the world. It's only a matter of time that this happens here. Why isn't the budget being more reflective of the fact that um, COVID-19 is going to become a worldwide pandemic? And we have the benefit of hindsight, but I remember being in there at the legislature on budget day, and that was the number one question that myself and other reporters were asking the government. And they really kind of downplayed the concerns. And now here we are um, halfway through 2020 and we're seeing that, you know, I don't want to say that the press got it right, but at the same time, we're just seeing that there wasn't enough seriousness attached to the pandemic. And it's, it's really going to have massive implications for the province as a whole. Yeah. And, and just to fill in the listeners real quickly, uh, Adam, you did write, I guess, a more detailed breakdown um, on the gatewayonline.ca. So uh, if you guys want to see the actual numbers and figures, and uh, there's pretty wonderful charts in here, uh, make sure to check that out. But uh, Mitchell, were you going to add something? Uh, just that I think it's like, it's it's been an interesting fiscal year to watch, but that it's it's really interesting to me to watch a party that was elected on largely trying to scale back the deficit. Um, it was one of the key issues the UCP and Premier, then then party leader and opposition leader Ken identified, um, and understandably they haven't been able to do that. But I, I still think it's interesting to see that it's still going to be a long term problem. Um, and I think I think it speaks to just larger issues in Alberta around our revenue sources. You know. 
Um, regardless of um, listeners, if you have a partisan affiliation or not, the matter of the fact is is that in Alberta we have two political parties. That one, the the current government, the United Conservative Party, is trying to cut spending to try and scale back the deficit. Um, and the NDP, led by Rachel Notley, is interested in deficit spending forever. And those are really the two options that all like Albertans are presented with. But there's so many other ways that we can actually get real revenue into the, in like into our treasury, to actually pay for these services if we wanted them. You know, Albertans pay quite a bit of money for their services, and back in the day, we were able to do that because we had um, oil and gas was good, and we had huge, we had quite a bit of revenue from that from royalties. And now that's mm-hmm. dried up. We don't have that actual extra money to do it, and instead of doing anything about actually addressing the revenue situation um we've just put ourselves in this place where we either run deficits or we cut social services and there's so many other options we could actually do like a provincial sales tax for example or like raising Whoa, like Mitch. taxes for I, he it's, said it's, it he said oh it. no <laughs> he's, a he's a communist he's a communist uh, well, that's the thing, though. It, it gets me every time. This is like, it's for listeners that don't know the context around this. We're the only province without a PST, and it's like the death word in Albertan politics yeah. for any politician to bring this up. But it's like, if we had one, we wouldn't be running deficits, and we could actually afford to pay for our services, and we wouldn't be on track to have such long-term debt. And it it gets me that that is the case. We could also raise taxes on corporations um, is another option that I've heard some people say instead of a PST. Um, either or, really, but I mean, there just are a variety of options to actually address this, but it's disappointing because I feel like none of those options are actually on the table for Albertans to choose from when they go and vote. And I think what's really important and and something that I want to stress is that, you know, a lot of the times when people see articles like, oh, mid-year fiscal update or, oh, budgetary update, it's really boring and it's cut and dry and, and it's a lot of numbers and it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to fathom what um, a deficit of $97.4 billion or a debt load correction of $97.4 billion would be like, but this it might be boring, but it has incredibly serious ramifications. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, our coverage focused in on is the post-secondary avenue. Um, because our readers are primarily post-secondary students, that's kind of the beat we occupy. But it's incredibly alarming. And if I was a student who's uh, graduating uh, from high school in Alberta or a student who's looking at universities to attend, in the future, yeah. if I was elsewhere in Canada, I would not be looking to Alberta based off of this fiscal update because one of the things that the update made clear is that operating both operating expenses for advanced education spending and also capital investments, so operating expenses, those are supports that are given to post-secondary institutions, things like student aid, uh, things like foundational learning supports, um, things that help create classes and subsidize some of the costs of, of, of creating classes and, and, and all that. And then capital investment is things like um, infrastructure spending, addressing deferred maintenance, which is just maintenance that has been put off for so many years um, because there hasn't been money. 
um, and building new buildings or uh, re-equipping buildings with new technology and, and things like that, both of those aspects of post-secondary are going to be seeing less and less funding from the province for the next two to three years. Um, in fact, the capital investments, they're set to decline at a faster pace than what was originally announced within budget 2020. Um, and, and that to me is on top of what the things that we've been talking about on this podcast, like academic restructuring um, and other successive cuts that are happening, um, you're going to see a very massive decline in student experience and mm-hmm. um, the value that you're going to get out of post-secondary education in the province because um, there's going to be less classes, there's going to be less buildings, you're going to be in bigger class sizes so you don't get that interactions with professors and you're going to have not the latest and best technology in your classes, but you're going to be sitting in buildings that are, you know, 70, 80 years old that don't have working boilers where you don't have a reliable source of heat or are falling apart. I mean, just last year, we saw that building at University of Calgary, the pipe literally burst during class change and hundreds of students getting flooded (laughs) from this broken water main pipe and that's because the maintenance has been put off for so many years and this fiscal update is showing that um you know the province is saying they don't have the fiscal capacity but these costs are just going to become more and more are going to become higher and higher as time as time goes on and by not addressing them now you're actually creating a fiscal liability for the future and so if i was a a student who's thinking about entering post-secondary um i would be very concerned right now yeah well and to expand on that too like if the government continues like like as adam's made pretty clear it doesn't look like a bright future for universities and post-secondaries to be getting funding from like from the government um, the other option of getting money as well is to turn towards private sources, which would either mean trying to get universities to attract bigger donors, which has a series of problems, especially in places like Alberta, where most of, like, as a study that just came out from a professor at the University of Alberta shows, um, a lot of our research is disproportionately shaped by the oil and gas sector mm-hmm. because they donate quite a bit of money. Um, but the other option would be raising tuition and actually asking students to pay more for, in my opinion, what will be less services, as Adam yeah. has made pretty clear. Um, and I think that's a real issue, and it's a real consideration for anyone, regardless of whether you're in Alberta or anywhere else in Canada. If you want to come to our province and learn in our province, it's going to be a real consideration that you're going to have to pay much higher tuition, potentially, for less services if this continues. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, this is something that we talked about before on the podcast. Um, but, you know, yeah, when you talk about, about some of the cuts that are being made at the U of A and, and some of the services that we might be losing or, or changes um, to, I guess, the structure of the university, you know, I think rightly so, a lot of, a lot of concerns are being directed towards administration. Um, and, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of concerns expressed about that. But it is important to realize um, that like updates like this, this is, you know, the source of where all these changes are coming from. Like, like, like we said before, it wasn't really the U of A's idea to, to collapse a bunch of faculties into each other and make these massive cuts to, um, oh yeah, I guess you could partly say it was the U of A's idea, but like this, it was, um, it was stemming from these cuts that we're, we're seeing from the provincial level. Um, so I guess th- that is like a necessary bit of perspective um, just for listeners and, 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 you know, students at the U of A. 
you you hit the nail on the head there tom it's incredibly important to make that known and i i really want to take fault with mainstream media about how they've covered this update um because one of the things that the ucp government has been touting as a, a massive victory with this fiscal update is that you know yes it's somber yes there's a lot more debt but you know in our first quarter update in august we projected that we would have a 24.2 billion dollar deficit so the deficit was going to be more and we were able to actually take away two billion dollars from that deficit um, and now the deficit at the end of this year is only going to be $21.3 billion. And so a lot of mainstream media picked up on this and was like, oh my God, oh my goodness, like, look what the UCP did. They magically pulled out $2 billion out of their hat and they made it better. And a lot of, you'll see if you, if you Google, and I encourage you to do so, if you take a look at some of the headlines that, you know, the Edmonton Journal, even the Globe and Mail or Global and other publications ended up running with is that, somber reality but hope ahead and it's like first of all let's talk about where this two billion dollars came from almost half of that 1.2 billion dollars came from federal support so this wasn't money that the ucp you know was looking around in sofas in the legislature and was able to find <laughs> oh my gosh we found another 1.2 billion dollars no, no no this was papa trudeau oh. from ottawa <laughs> trudeau bucks <laughs> <laughs> and saying hey here's support and so you know it's not that the ucp is is doing a better job we're just lucky we live in a in a federation or in a federal system where we have a federal government who can support provinces in times of need and in times of crisis like we're experiencing right now with covid19 and you know this there i think mainstream media has really miscategorized this this budget update as like we still have a road to recovery and there's still a brighter hope for the future but one of the things that we wrote about and no other publication ended up writing about is the fact that in the report that the uh, uh, provincial government released alongside this update is that unemployment is adversely affecting 15 to 24 year olds in alberta and that they are one of the highest proportions of the population in Alberta to be experiencing negative labor market outcomes, meaning that they can't find jobs. There's not enough jobs for them. They don't have jobs that they're trained for. You have people who are graduating from university, um, from even polytechnics with, with certificates and red seals and things like that, that they just can't use. And that these uh, forecasts for unemployment, they're not going away. In fact, the budget documents show that these negative labor market outcomes, they're not going to recover until 2023. Mm. And so as a young person who's, who's going to be graduating in, um, in, in next summer, this, this sends chills down my spine. And it's something that people are not talking about that mainstream media did not report about, um, hearkening back to our earlier discussion about why student journalism is so important. But this is going to have really big ramifications for for all of us for for all of us who are on this podcast and arguably yeah. people who are listening too and so i think that we really need to be talking about those types of things yeah well and i don't know what gets me about that too is that i just i feel like scared as a student to like think about graduating and entering the workforce in alberta and i know from talking to not only the volunteers in my section but talking to my friends um my coworkers, like, I'm, I'm not alone in that feeling. 
and I think I think what's really disappointing is that we've had, and this is this is not just um, solely the actions of the current government, but we've had a series of governments in, in Alberta over the last decade that have liked to brag about the fact that Alberta is the youngest province per like like in terms of average age. Yeah. That like like that we're like these like youthful entrepreneurs and stuff, but I I really fail to see an actual lack of support for students that are entering the workforce um, and for young people that actually want to try and find work here. Um, in any sector that's not oil and gas, and even then the future for that sector doesn't look bright just due to things that are beyond the government's control. Like, And I don't know, it's, it's a really scary time, I think, to potentially think about graduating, not only due to COVID, but due to the shape of just our economy even once the pandemic ends, which mm-hmm. is frightening for me as a as, as someone who hopes to graduate next year so don't, don't do it mitch don't do it i be a forever student is what i'm trying to tell listeners um yeah um, and then you can work at the gateway forever exactly think about it it's uh it's the dream um, yeah yeah i think an unfortunate reality of that is um because yeah like mitch you said you've talked to people who are concerned about that. And I, I've heard similar things. And I think like an unfortunate reality is that a lot of people just don't see their future in Alberta anymore. Um, you know, I, I think this last year, I already know a few people who have like moved to Saskatchewan or BC um, just because I guess they see themselves having more, yeah, more of a future there. And I don't know if Alberta is really on people's radars like that um, anymore. Um, but I guess to, to transition maybe to a topic, um, you know, about uh, hope for the future. Uh, <laughs> we are going to get into, uh, maybe I'm being a little bit sarcastic there, um, but we are going to get into uh, some U of A headlines. This past week has um, been pretty wild. Uh, the gatewayonline.ca has been popping off. Uh, we got articles about academic restructuring, UPass updates, um, the winter semester being delayed. Um, but Mitch, you actually wanted to bring a story about the Meyer Howard's Theater. Um, do you want to give us maybe some updates on that? A hundred percent. So um, the Meyer Horowitz Theater um, is the theater that's in the Student Union Building. And for the context of listeners, I would say that over the past five years, the biggest institutional goal of our students' union has been to try and renovate the Meyer Horowitz Theater. So um, they want to try and revamp it, get new seats, expand the lobby, Um and they've been doing this, they've been trying to do this for a long time because their hopes and expectations for it is that it would be able to raise the revenue that they get, um, not only through external groups, but they also, the SU claims that their biggest thing about it is trying to make it so that students can have a community space to come and kind of come together as a student community and come together as a student body. Um, but they've, it's been notoriously difficult to try and get done. Um, Initially, what they the SU did was they put it to a vote in 2018 in the Students' Events Initiative, um, which narrowly failed when students actually voted on it, which means that um, if it had passed, students would have been paying $16.50 a semester um, to go into re- renovating this, and it failed, I believe, by 49%, um, but it was a very narrow vote. Um, after that, they tried to get the plans drawn up to do the student, event, uh, the student spaces levy, uh, which would have gone similarly to a referendum to try and have students pay for this. Um, SU Council quashed that um, before it could go to a vote. Uh, and then finally, and this is the big update that has happened this year, 
Um, our last election cycle, the SU put to a vote what they call the Sustainability and Capital Fund. Mm-mm. So the background for this fund is that um, it would be a $25 semester charge in fall and winter, um, a bit less in the summer and spring. And the money gathered from this would go towards um, projects that go towards sustainability, which according to the SU, has quite a wide range. It's not only environmental sustainability, it's also economic sustainability. So the result of this has been that this passed, and so they actually, the SU has quite a large fund from this now that can go towards projects. And so what the Students' Union has been talking about these last few weeks is putting um, $17.5 million from this fund towards renovating the Matter Horowitz Theatre. So it's it's been a huge project over the last several years. Um, there's a lot of debate and criticism over the theater renovation, as I think we're going to get into a bit yeah. um, on the podcast. Um, <laughs> it hasn't always been smooth sailing. Um, but nonetheless, it's going to be a really crucial vote because um, council votes as to whether or not to use the sustainability and capital fund to renovate the theater this week. They won't necessarily finalize all the financial details this upcoming week, but they will be voting on it this upcoming Tuesday, which will be, um, I believe that's actually December 1st, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Ooh, so I keep Christmas, holidays. <laughs> yeah, Christmas, and the SU might gift you a theater renovation that it's, yeah. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, so we can get in. Um, I'm especially curious to have Adam talk a bit about this, because I know, yeah. Adam, you've You've been covering this your whole time. You've been a student journalist. Um, ever since you were that volunteer that wrote about theater reviews in, as, as a first year, <laughs> it's well, coming full circle. For, first of all, I, I want to say, Mitchell, you did a fantastic job of providing context for the past yeah. five years development <laughs> of this issue because this uh, it's amazing to me that we're still talking about this. I remember in my first year about going to student council meetings and seeing debate about this and here we are still debating this theater. <laughs> but um, I just want to say that I think first of all I don't understand the sense of urgency that the students union is presenting. I know that one of their lines of argumentation is that we need to renew uh, renew the theater now. Um, because if we don't do so, it will become more expensive. But I don't think they've done a good enough job of communicating the value of why now is the best time to renew it. Um, in 2017, the theater had net earnings of just under $157,000. Um, and in 2018, that number further dropped by another $64,000. I don't have figures for 2019 or 2020, but um, this makes it a, you know, Yes, it is a very major line item in in the Mm -hmm. Students' Union budget, but um, I just think that right now there should be bigger priorities for the Students' Union to to figure out. Um, You know, a lot of the times when when they're talking about this theater renewal project, they say that the washroom facilities are too small for larger performances, the seats are uncomfortable, there's a lack of modern technology, or the fact that um, you know, there's a lack of all gender washrooms to be inclusive and, uh, and equitable to people. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I would say about this theater is just that there are so many other parts of SUB, the Students' Union building, the only building that the Students' Union owns and operates at the University of Alberta, that require, I would say, more pressing fiscal renewal than, than this theater um, and quite frankly, we don't even know when we will be able to gather again in, in yeah. a theater space. 
uh, right now with COVID. I mean, the latest projections of vaccines being distributed widely to Canada are fall 2021. Um, I, I mean, as scary as it is to think about that, and I, I feel like I'm the doom and gloom guy on this podcast. I'm so sorry because I brought all I'm this. Doom and gloom. <laughs> no, Adam, <laughs> lean into it. Lean into it, man. Make this your brand. I guess I'm the harbinger <laughs> of doom and gloom. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I I just think that right now we should be thinking about other priorities or even maybe thinking about saving that money for for other projects that are more necessary than than a theater space. But that's just my five cents. Yeah, well, and and to be fair to the students union, like their line of argument that that I understand from hearing their um, points of view at council is that this project would be um, it would result in a community hub within the building where students come together and as part of a long-term vision their hope is that by gathering more revenue that they'll be able to become less dependent on student fees um Mm. but as opinion editor i have real questions about both those claims where a um currently as the theater currently stands um personally i like it's hard for me as an art student to imagine doing a lot there simply because I have never done anything in the Meyer Horowitz that's been student related. It's always been an external show renting out the theater space. Um, And according to the stats that I got given students like student events only happen in the theater one third of the time. And some of those might not even be like student groups. They could be like student, like SU events for the, or like, like week of welcome, like that kind of stuff where it's not necessarily like, student groups coming and congregating there um but i think the biggest thing from that is like if we're going to renovate this theater and spend so much money on this theater i think there should be really clear strategic plan to actually show like that shows that it will become a student hub um and i'm just not necessarily convinced by the line of argumentation um the argument of one of the presenters at students council last week was that oh you know like student groups want somewhere comfy to be. They're hoping that um, they can like do some sort of partnerships with other external organizations to offer student groups like a reduced price or even like free events in an ideal scenario. But that relies quite a bit on like partner buy-in that I don't necessarily see happening for the students' union. And it also relies on the fact that student groups would choose to go to the Meyer Horwitz Theater instead of just going to cheaper or even free spaces that already exist on campus. Yeah. Like I struggle to see as a student group, why you would go spend so much money or like any money, just to be honest, not even so much any amount of money on the Meyer Horowitz theater space. If you can get a lecture hall in um, ECA for free, for example. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really important piece of context here is that, you know, for example, the university improv group at the U of A, has always used just those lecture halls and they're just as comfortable. They get the job done. Obviously you don't necessarily get the most high end lighting or, um, you know, sound equipment ever, but you have to recognize that. And just for context in the 20 kilometer kind of square radius, if you extend from the Meyer Horowitz theater around, you have a number of professional theaters that are in my opinion, a lot, better spaces and they have subsidies and grants for for small groups to to rent you've got the university of alberta's own tim's center run by the university um, and the faculty of arts you've got the jubilee auditorium you've got a bunch of 
uh, smaller theater venues on white. You've got the Citadel Theater across the river, which has a mixture of large theaters and then small theaters like the 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 shock. Uh, sorry, the Shockter is the biggest theater, but then you have um, some smaller venues that are more intimate and more affordable and things like that. But to me, if if I was a student group, I mean, it's it would be way out of my budget to even consider renting a professional theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just think that for student for students who are paying into this program, um, we don't even know what the returns will be on this investment. And uh, that to me is the most concerning part is that the Students Union wants to trudge along and renovate this theater, spend a large amount of money on it, um, but we don't necessarily know what the outcome will be and if this is a space that will even be accessible to student groups. Yeah, well, and I think one of the big parts of it too is that the financing around this just seems so odd to me. Um, when it was initially proposed in 2016 as a like as a project, the estimated cost for the whole renovation was at 11 million, and the students' union was hoping to fundraise around seven million dollars of that from external donors. Um, and over the years, both those projections have changed quite vastly. Um, it's con- the project has continuously gone up in its costs, um, partially because of inflation, but also partially because extra things keep getting added onto it. And the fundraising cost has gone substantively down. So the SU had an external group come in and evaluate how much money they think they could, re- they could have realistically gotten donors to like give for this project. And they came back with roughly $3 million, with an additional $2 million if they had student buy-in, which is why they actually wanted the Student Events Initiative to pass referendum in the first place to demonstrate that they had that. And so the Students Events Initiative failed. Um, The Student Spaces Levy, which was kind of supposed to be a follow-up to it, didn't end up going to referendum because council rejected it. And the Sustainability and Capital Fund isn't really, wasn't really a referendum on student spaces. It was a referendum primarily on sustainability mm-hmm. and the campaign for it heavily focused on environmental sustainability and not economic. So I don't really take that as a buy-in to renovations like this. And that's kind of reflected in the fact that fundraising has gone down below $3 million in their expectations. Um, when um, they presented at council last week the expected costs, they're hoping to fundraise anywhere from half a million to two like to just over two and a half million dollars for this and i think that that's if students have to pay 17 and a half million dollars for this project which like i mean to be honest like might not be the final price um i think that's a lot to ask especially when students themselves haven't necessarily shown support for this project in the past yeah man that's uh honestly as someone who i wasn't even like I, I wasn't really familiar with the Meyer Howard's project. Like, obviously, I've been to the theater a few times. Um, but I know even before the show, when you were mentioning that this has been going on for five years, um, I was pretty <laughs> I was pretty stunned by that. Um, uh, but, yeah, I don't know. It's it really good to get, get some more context on, on the renovations. Um, Mitch, I know you said you're working on an article that should be going up soon talking about that. Yeah, I'm yeah. hoping to have one up by tomorrow as uh, um, Monday. Um, fingers crossed, um, <laughs> slash today um, when the podcast yeah, gets when released. Yeah, when the podcast um, goes up. Uh, we're recording on Sunday, but yeah, um, I'm hoping to finish one tonight because, yeah, I have, I have pretty strong feelings that, um, you know, this has been the major goal of the SU, and I don't want to necessarily 
um, take away from the fact that this could be a major vote on Tuesday, but yeah. I, it is a lot to ask of students when I feel like a lot of the like nitty-gritty details about how to achieve getting more students in the space and how to achieve these finances mm-hmm. are a bit more fuzzy than I would personally like. Mm-hmm. When, when I think of the Students' Union building, I think of a place to study primarily, and I think of a place to grab a meal. And obviously, it, it's the building where our office is in, so I think of, you know, all work. But um, I remember even before when I was a volunteer at the Gateway, the Students' Union building was my favorite place to study because it was open 24 hours a day. And so I never thought of the Meyer Horowitz as like, ah, yes, I'm going to go visit a comedian um, that's in in the Meyer Horowitz. And to me, I, I think that there are a lot more pressing infrastructure concerns that are actually pressing as opposed to this theater. Um you know, when you go into the Students' Union building and you see some of the, the state of the washrooms on the first floor, um, you know, there's stall doors that don't close. Um, there's uh, counters that are broken and sticky. Um, you've got urinals that are leaking. And 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 then you have, uh, you know, just, just looking at the bathrooms alone, um, this is a building that thousands of students rely on to study and and to be a hub for other campus services and it it's not receiving the attention it needs um there's a lot of study rooms and also meeting rooms that are rented out by student groups which are used a lot more than the theater but yet one of the two elevators in the building is still broken and out of service um you know, near, nearly two months now since um, an, an, an incident where it broke down occurred. Um, I would argue that I would rather spend this money on some actual renovations, maybe getting some new furniture for the study spaces or making um, the washrooms um, better and, and fixing that damn elevator um, than, <laughs> than investing in, in this theater, because I think that that is where students see value when they're paying into the students union build or students union. Um, and, and that building is, is, is its biggest asset, the whole building, not just the theater. And, and I think that perspective needs to be said. Yeah. Well, and honestly, I, I see the appeal in a community building project. Like I, I see the appeal in like this kind of idealized notion of having a spot where students can come together but a, I think as you said very well, Adam, I, you see that a, a lot on the first floor when people come together to actually study. Like I think some of my best memories in sub, like I have no memories in sub that are student-based of me being in the Meyer Horowitz, but I have a yeah. ton of memories of me in sub laughing with friends on the first floor um, over Opa fries. Like, and I would, I just, if you're going to spend this much money of students' money that comes from a fund that also isn't like contingent on fixing student fa- like spaces. I would just rather see this, like the details of this project laid out because there are the, you could renovate that whole space to be something entirely different, which um, very little has been said about, but it is a possibility. And honestly, I if you renovate it into study spaces, who knows? It also <laughs> might get more use than uh, out of the theater for students, like. Because thus far, I don't really see much impetus as to why students feel this depressing concern. I'm just imagining them becoming like study spaces, but there's like an entry fee. There's like a toll booth <laughs> just to get into. <laughs> <laughs> just like, like get rid of all. Yeah, just like. Well. 
take out all the wall outlets and the rest of the sub and put them all in this like $15 an hour. Zone. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, man, kind of oh, wow. oh my God. <laughs> um, Tom, yeah. don't, don't give them ideas. Okay. No, I think, um, I, yeah, I, I think this, like these are the kinds of conversations that are super important, um, especially at a time like this. Cause I know we've talked about it earlier on the show, but I think, you know, with school being online this semester and next, a lot of people are very disconnected from like the physical campus. Um, and like, they just don't know what's going on. And, and, you know, for good reason, they're not really that interested in what's going on. Um, but, you know, as we can see, there's still being decisions made that are going to affect us, um, you know, ideally beyond the pandemic, whenever that ends. Um, and so, and so it's a good idea to keep an eye, to keep an eye on those. Uh, so the vote itself is happening on December 1st. Um, so that's Tuesday this week, uh, tomorrow when you're listening to this, uh, when you're hearing this. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to have some coverage on the gateway uh, to talk about the fallout from that. But I think uh, that is all for this week. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Grammys and and uh, and the provincial government and, and also some UVA news. And I think that might be a good point uh, to close on. Adam, this was your first time on the Byliners. I thought it might, uh, how'd it go? Um, it, it, it flew by. I, I'm just yeah. looking at the <laughs> clock right now and I'm like, oh my God, there, there yeah. just went, uh, two and a half hours. Uh, didn't yeah. feel like it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And yeah. apologies for being the doom and gloom guy. Hey man, you need, we love so. doom and gloom. <laughs> we live in Alberta. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 50 years away from being a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Um, <laughs> and that's an optimistic projection that still gives us 50 years what about the ipcc hey, report yeah man I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of guy adam, uh, nice, <laughs> nice. adam don't you know if we uh if climate change ravages the world alberta will be better off because we'll have beefier barley oh yeah uh, about that. <laughs> oh my god our barley is thick <laughs> we, got the, we got the thickest barley <laughs> Uh, I, I totally forgot about that and the fact that you brought it up right now I bet you there's a U of A comms person who's been tasked to listen to this podcast who is now grimacing about that I yeah, thought we scrubbed that from the internet why are there still people talking about this I'll never stop talking about beefier barley um, for, for listeners that don't know um, U of A comms purchased a billboard I think it was, it was a year ago it wasn't even that long ago yeah. um uh, where they put up an ad that was like climate change leads to beefier barley essentially like as, as a quick summary and yeah um the u of a um ex like one of the vice presidents of the university paid for that with her job so um <laughs> give you context it's a little bit of a sore point for the comms department of the u of a um uh, that's cruel mitch yeah um, um just to, it's, it's a cup half full perspective on climate yeah. change <laughs> it's the only yes. we accept Barley is the concern when it comes to climate change. <laughs> Barley, everyone. Always. Uh, need need to get me some of that oat. Is barley an oat? What is barley? Uh, I think oat is or a barley. Is it a, a, a wheat? A In the wheat, wheat family? Yeah. It's a grain. Oh, okay. A grain, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. I mean, who doesn't want more grains in a post-apocalyptic wasteland? <laughs> Might not have water, but, you know. We might have to use like oxygen tanks to breathe, but we'll have beefier barley. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and until we get there, uh, hopefully we'll still have the byliners. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was my sorry attempt to try to bring things back on topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to go from talking about um, eating eating beefy barley in the apocalypse to transitioning um, out of the show, but uh, but I well, tried. Yeah, Mitch? leaders. If you if you're not interested in beefy, beefy barley, but you're interested in beefy media coverage, oh, go to ah, yes. ah, Mitch, yeah. Mitch, I might just edit out my entire <laughs> flop. <laughs> just put that in there. <laughs> we got the beefiest media coverage. <laughs> uh, try, try and make it work. Um, Bite into this juicy media coverage. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, the world might be disparaged, but student journalism, we're still going to be going strong. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think uh, I think that's all for this week. Um, Adam, we were uh, we were glad to have you. Um, I, I suspect this won't be the last time we'll see you on the Gateway. I mean, not the Gateway, on the Byliners. You're on the, ga- you're on the Gateway all the time. <laughs> Adam just vanishes. Yeah. Oh, my. Do you know something I don't, Tom? Yeah, man, we're planning a coup, Adam. Uh, I, I, I hate for you to find out like this, but, um, yeah. Oh, damn. We finally get back into the office, and it's just Tom at the EIC desk, just, like, like petting a cat. <laughs> surrounded by me as a foot. Surrounded by, like, asbestos and exposed wires, yeah. Uh. <laughs> No, no, no! The asbestos is gone now. We're we're good in that department. They just got to put the oh. the walls up. Okay. I'm so sorry. This this won't be on the podcast, but I just need to say they didn't take asbestos into account in the renovation finances until this last presentation. Just to throw that out there, I was like, how how did no one think about that? Oh, no, you know what? No, throw that in there. Yeah, let, that's what I'm thinking. That should be the podcast. Know. Yeah, <laughs> the people deserve to know about these finance. They're they're willing to spend on new plush seats in a theater, but asbestos in a student building. Let's keep that. No, man. Well, they're going to be removing it, but apparently in 2016 they just forgot that. Um, oh yeah, yeah. perfect. <laughs> it builds character, man. Um, right, Again, so- the doom and gloom. <laughs> uh <laughs> all right so i think uh i think that's all uh for this week so uh if we all just want to say um oh i i forgot almost forgot to add um yeah if you're listening to this make sure to uh subscribe wherever you are uh leave a rating five stars only that's the rule um you know tell your friends about it especially if they go to the u of a uh it's this is obviously a quick easy digestible way to keep track of what's going on um yeah so make sure to do all those things but uh but i think we're gonna call it uh we're gonna call it a day do you guys want to say bye 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 love you you listeners (laughs) 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 good day (laughs) (laughs) all right uh we'll see you all next week take care